Welcome to Dig, a history podcast. You know what's kind of a lost art, Avril? I don't. What is? <laughs> Snuff taking. <laughs> Smoking has been and always will be a thing, and chewing tobacco, which is a kind of snuff, has its rightful place in 20th century American baseball, at least. But nasal snuff, or smeechin, or sneezing tobacco, or snoo, as it's called by the Swedes, is so incredibly niche that most folks haven't ever heard of it. Even fewer know how to take it. Moist or oral snuff is essentially chewing tobacco. You take a pinch or dip of ground or finely shredded cured tobacco leaves and put it between your lip and gums. Dry or nasal snuff is a powdered tobacco product that is kept in some sort of receptacle. When one wants a hit of the sweet stuff, they pinch a small amount of powder between their index finger and thumb, or they use a special little spoon or long nail, bring it up to their nose, and sniff the powder up one nostril and then the other. Unlike cocaine snorting, dry snuff is meant to be ejected sometime later via a sneeze. In fact, one of snuff's most enjoyable qualities is that it provokes a sneeze, which is weird, uh, but I also kind of get it because sneezing is kind of satisfying. For many of us today, this drug and the ritual associated with it is entirely foreign to us. But in snuff's golden age, the 18th century, using snuff was as commonplace as having a cup of coffee is today. In some ways, tobacco snuff was the pumpkin spice latte of the 1700s, a pop cultural phenomenon that elicited long lines, gushing praise, and endless branding opportunities. But plenty of people rolled their eyes at all the basic bitches whose lives revolved around snuff just as they do with PSLs. In 1784, Giacomo Casanova, yes, that Casanova, witnessed the Parisian snuff frenzy firsthand. While riding in his coach, he observed a near riot outside of a Parisian snuff shop. He consulted his coachmates. Is it only sold in this shop? <laughs> it is sold everywhere, but for the last three weeks, no one will have any snuff in his snuff box except what comes from the civet cat. Is it better than others? No, not at all. It may even be worse. But since the Duchess of Chartres made it fashionable, no one will have anything else. Oh. Tobacco smoking is definitely the default way to consume tobacco. But in certain times and places, smokeless tobacco such as snuff, chew, or tobacco tea have found niches. Yes, snuff was practical for some, a pop phenomenon for others, but many of these historical niches for smokeless tobacco were medicinal. It's difficult to imagine now in a society raised on the message of smoking kills, but tobacco's introduction onto the world stage in the 1500s can be traced primarily to its supposed medicinal properties. This is especially true of smokeless tobacco, but smokeless tobacco's story doesn't end there. Get ready for a wild ride. This is the global history of smokeless tobacco. I'm Marissa. And I'm Avril. And we are your historians for this episode of Dig. Before we regale you with stories of drugs and disease, we have some very special people to thank. Our Patreon supporters keep the lights on, or at least the microphone's recording. We're grateful for each and every one of you. We want to give a special shout out to our mega donors, our auger and excavated level patrons. And I'm going to make some verbal eye contact here with you. Ready? Maddie. Denise. Colin. Edward, Susan, Christopher, Peggy, Maggie, Danielle, 
Iris. Your generosity knows no bounds, and we are honored that you choose to support us. Listener, if you are not yet a patron of the show, it's easy. Just go to patreon.com backslash dig podcast to learn more. Today we bring to you the panoramic global history of smokeless tobacco, thanks in large part to one of my new favorite books, Tobacco, A Cultural History of How an Exotic Plant Seduced Civilization by author Ian Gately. No, uh, this isn't exactly a plug for Gately's book, um, but when I was doing research on the topic of snuff, I was so entranced by the monograph that it's kind of all I wanted to talk about anymore. Um, I integrated additional sources as well, and you can find them all in our show notes. In indigenous American societies, tobacco served several important purposes. The plant's therapeutic uses were many. The plant was used as a mild analgesic and antiseptic. Indigenous Americans packed tobacco leaves around aching teeth or painful wounds. Tobacco leaves and juice were used to treat snake bites. Indigenous medicine typically overlapped with religious ritual. Shamans used strong tobacco as teas as an intoxicant that carried them on vision quests, wherein they would identify the causes and remedies of disease. They blew tobacco smoke all over the bodies of the ill as a diagnostic tool. This form of passive smoking could also be employed as a cure for complex ailments, which were believed to be ceremoniously carried away by smoke spirits. Shamans in training use similar tobacco concoctions, often mixed with other narcotics, to bring themselves to the brink of death. Only after they defeated their intoxicated visions were they initiated into the shamanic priesthood. This journey often resembled a hallucinogenic obstacle course. One Waro shaman recounted his trial, which required him to, quote, pass places where demons armed with spears are waiting to kill him, where slippery spots threaten to unbalance, and where giant raptors claw him. Finally, he must pass through a hole in an enormous tree with rapidly opening and closing doors. These simple gates are the actual threshold between life and death. Jumping through the clashing doors, he beholds the bones of those who went before him, but failed to clear the gateway. Not finding his own bones among them, he returns from the other world, restored to new life. End quote. Among the Inca, tobacco snuff was used for medicinal purposes only. Their chosen intoxicant was the coca leaf. The Inca used llamas as pack animals to transport coca and tobacco leaves across the thousands of miles of roads that connected the remote villages that composed their empire. Indigenous Brazilians also preferred the use of coca to that of tobacco. Amerigo Vespucci described this habit among the natives of Brazil shortly after he made contact. He said, quote, We found the most brutish and uncivilized people. Each had his cheeks bulging with a certain green herb, which they chewed like cattle. And hanging from his neck, each carried two dried gourds, one of which was full of the herb he kept in his mouth, and the other full of a certain white flower like powdered chalk. Frequently, each put a small stick into the gourd filled with flour, then drew it forth and put it in both sides of his cheek, thus mixing the flour with the herb which their mouths contained. The herb in their mouths was coca leaves. The powder they sucked from the gourd was powdered lime. Combined together, the coca leaf and lime powder rendered cocaine. In addition to its medicinal and ritual purposes, indigenous Americans used tobacco recreationally as well. Though they shared this pleasure readily with the explorers, conquerors, and settlers they encountered, it took some time for non-Americans to fall in love with tobacco. Since tobacco's rise in popularity, it has become clear that most people looking to use tobacco as an intoxicant turn to the modes of smoking, chewing, or snuffing. Is it lime, like lime citruses, or like the lime that's in the ground? I think it's lime that's in the ground. Like... Ew. Yeah. That's what you use to dissolve bodies. Yeah, it's like a... um. It's, um, I think it's very basic, like it on the, mm. you know, like the pH is very basic or whatever, mm. and it brings out the alkaloid that makes cocaine, I guess. Oh my God, science is so weird. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Okay. The indigenous groups of the West Indies introduced the art of snuffing tobacco to Christopher Columbus and his entourage. 
Columbus observed that snuffing was performed ceremoniously in spiritual dwellings, where the natives would sit around a, quote, finely wrought table, round like a wooden dish, in which some powder, which is placed by them on the heads of these idols, in performing a certain ceremony, then with a cane that has two branches, which they place in their nostrils. They snuff up the dust. With this powder, they lose consciousness and become like a drunken man." End quote. As the Spanish conquered and colonized South and Central America, Spaniards living in the earliest colonies took up the habit of snuff. Like the natives they subjugated, they too associated tobacco to snuffing with the divine. By far, the demographic most attracted to snuff were Roman Catholic clergy. By 1580, the taking of snuff was habitual among most Roman Catholic clergy. Many even took snuff as they administered the sacraments. Ecclesiastical authorities were displeased. A 1588 decree in Lima declared that, quote, It is forbidden under penalty of eternal damnation for priests about to administer the sacraments either to take the smoke of tobacco in the mouth or the powder of tobacco in the nose, even under the guise of medicine before the service of mass, end quote. In Europe, the second half of the 16th century saw the introduction of tobacco seeds to the Old World, but its cultivation was confined to palace gardens, where it was planted and tended for its beauty. The French diplomat to Portugal, Jean Nicot, was responsible for recognizing its medicinal properties. He cultivated the plant in the French embassy's garden and experimented on Lisbon locals suffering from serious illnesses. One man, suffering from cancer, was purportedly cured after Nicot used tobacco leaves to create a salve that he applied to the affected area. And I should say that um, Nicot was just really the first European in Europe to recognize its medicinal properties. Obviously, the reason that they had a, an inkling that it had medicinal properties was because um, indigenous folks in America were using it that way. Nico introduced the plant to the French court as a powerful medicine that could be used in poultices, teas, plasters, and clysters, or enemas. At the French court, tobacco was called Nicotia's herb. In his letter to Catherine de' Medici, introducing this new plant, Nicot described how tobacco could be snuffed up the nose. Before long, French courtiers were snuffing tobacco as a sort of vitamin to strengthen their bodies and protect them from illness. From the French court, Nicot's herb spread to Italy, where it was planted at the Vatican and in the gardens of Cosimo de' Medici, the Grand Duke of Tuscany. In 1565, a Sevian physician named Nicholas Monardes. <laughs> that happens a lot. <laughs> there he is again. <laughs> a Sevian physician named Nicholas Monardes published a pamphlet called Joyful News, which praised the Nicotian herb and listed its many medicinal uses. According to Monardes, tobacco could cure bad breath kidney stones, tapeworms, dandruff, and infected wounds. Due to this publication, medicinal tobacco spread to the rest of Europe, Bohemia, the German lands, and Switzerland. Medicinal preparations varied, and tobacco was cultivated, harvested, and prepared like any other medicinal herb in continental Europe. It was an incredibly expensive plant, so only the wealthy had access to it. In the British Isles, the situation was entirely different. The English, Welsh, Scottish, and Irish were, in the 1500s, somewhat peripheral to the rest of Europe. The most powerful among them, the English, were still relatively insecure on their thrones after the Wars of the Roses, and the monarchy was in the midst of delegitimizing powerful regional lords and consolidating its power nationally. Adding insult to injury, the English state was relatively poor. This was especially true as Spain and Portugal grew massively wealthy and powerful from their mercantile ventures in America. In the 1500s, the English focused most of their attention on chipping away at the Iberian power's growing empires. Given their unfortunate weaknesses, the English turned to privateering, or piracy, um, in order to disrupt Iberian shipping routes and claim Spanish riches for themselves, like without actually doing the, the work, right? 
Um, this tradition of English privateering had interesting consequences for tobacco use in the British Isles. Due to their deft command of the high seas, the British were the first Europeans to embrace smoking and the first to use tobacco recreationally. The first non-Americans to embrace the use of tobacco as an intoxicant were mariners. All throughout the 1500s, sailors were known to compulsively puff their tobacco pipes, even to the exclusion of food. Curious people from port cities around the world commented on the strange habit that sailors had picked up in the West Indies. For this reason, the plant was often referred to as the motherless weed because of its prevalence among Atlantic and Pacific seafarers. The infamous Elizabethan sea dogs, Sir Walter Raleigh, Sir John Hawkins, and Sir Francis Drake, were exposed to smoking during their ventures in Florida, the Chesapeake, and, in the case of Drake, the Pacific coast near San Francisco. The English sea dogs and mariners flying under most any flag took to smoking the plant, but many other demographics resisted that mode of tobacco consumption. There's a few reasons for this. The first was climate. Andean natives and Spanish settlers to Peru found that Andean air was too low in oxygen and therefore combustion too difficult for smoking to be a practical way of consuming tobacco. We'll have more to say about this in a few minutes, but we'll mention briefly here that tobacco smoking was also impractical in the damp climes of Ireland and the Scottish Highlands. These Celtic populations found that it was too difficult to keep tobacco leaves or smoking implements dry enough to smoke easily. The second reason, and perhaps the most powerful reason, that much of the world resisted the act of smoking were cultural and religious. Catholics had always associated smoke with the devil, hell, and brimfire. The acrid smell of tobacco smoke reminded virtuous Catholics of the sulfuric aroma of hell. This instinctual disgust was compounded by the fact that Catholic imperial powers used tobacco smoking to criticize indigenous American hygiene and to associate them with paganism and Satanism in order to justify their missions. For this reason, Catholics tended to spurn tobacco smoking in favor of smokeless tobacco, while Protestants embraced smoking. Protestant ambiguity towards smoke was complicated briefly by 17th century witch panics. The tobacco plant is closely related to both belladonna and henbane. This relation was known early on thanks to the rise of the study of botany in the 1500s. One of tobacco's nicknames was henbane of Peru. This was unfortunate because belladonna and henbane were well-known ingredients in witches' brews. Legend held that the combination of the two plants into a paste allowed witches to achieve flight. James VI of Scotland, a.k.a. James I of England, a noted witch hunter king, made tobacco his hobby horse for some time. James wrote a pamphlet called Counterblast to Tobacco, which is like, I don't know why, I just think that's really funny. It's like so dramatic. Um, it's so James. Yes, yeah, so, so James. James. Um, where he rewrote tobacco's history to capitalize on racism toward indigenous Americans, suspicion of Satanism, xenophobia, and Europe's syphilis epidemic. So, like, this is so many of our episodes rolled into one. So, quote, uh, For tobacco being a common herb which grows almost everywhere, it was first found out by some of the barbarous Indians to be a preservative or antidote against the pox, a filthy disease, whereunto these barbarous people are, as all men know, very much subject, what through the uncleanly constitution of their bodies, and what through the intemperate heat of their climate, so that as from them was first brought into Christendom that most detestable disease. So from the likewise was brought this use of tobacco as a stinking and unsavory antidote for so corrupted and execrable a malady, the stinking suffumigation whereof they yet use against the disease, making so one canker or vermin to eat out another. Sexual. He continues, quote, And now, good countrymen, let us, I pray you, consider that honor or policy can move us to imitate the barbarous and beastly manners of the wild, godless, and slavish Indians, especially in so vile and stinking a custom. Shall we that disdain to imitate the manners of our neighbor France, 
having the style of the great Christian kingdom, and that cannot endure the spirit of the Spaniards, their king being now comparable in largeness of dominions, to the greatest emperor of Turkey. Shall we, I say, that have been so long civil and wealthy in peace, famous and invincible in war, fortunate in both, we that have been ever able to aid any of our neighbors, but never deafened any of their ears with any of our supplications for assistance, shall we, I say, without blushing, abase ourselves so far as to imitate these beastly Indians, slaves to the Spaniards, refuse to the world, and as yet aliens from the holy covenant of God? Why do we not as well imitate them in walking naked, as they do, in preferring glasses, feathers, and such toys to gold and precious stones, as they do? Yea, why do we not deny God and adore the devil, as they do? He is such a drama queen. It's insane. Oh my god, he's the worst. The absolute worst. Um, James's vitriol looks similar to Iberia's very early reactions to tobacco smoking before Spanish and Portuguese colonists became addicted to snuff. But by the time of James's rule, the early 1600s, the Spanish and Portuguese had been snuffing tobacco for nearly a century. The association of tobacco with the diabolical was unmoving to them, since many of them had already developed the habit. So, ironically, because of the Catholics' early exposure to tobacco, they had already accepted the diabolical weed as an inevitable part of life at a time when Protestants were debating the plant's spiritual implications. By the late 1500s, Spain had taken to regulating their imperial tobacco industry. In 1606, King Philip III of Spain decreed that tobacco could only be grown in Cuba, Santo Domingo, Venezuela, and Puerto Rico. Tobacco dealings with foreigners became punishable by death. Increasing the crown's stranglehold on the trade in 1614, Philip III declared that all tobacco imports must be sent to Seville. In 1620, Seville's first tobacco factory was opened, specializing in the production of snuff. In 1636, the Crown established the Royal Tobacco Company called the Tabacalera and opened state-run tobacco shops called Estancos. This allowed the Crown to tax tobacco at a high rate and rake in the dough. But ecclesiastical authorities were unhappy that colonial snuff habit was spreading from Seville outward to the rest of the peninsula. Priests in Seville embraced the taking of snuff so wholeheartedly that Pope Urban VIII had to threaten the clergy with excommunication if they continued to take snuff during Mass. It's addictive, you know? Uh, In the rest of the world, which was largely non-Christian, obviously, the differentiation between smoking and smokeless tobacco was less important. The global spread of tobacco happened relatively rapidly by 1600, primarily due to the fact that Atlantic and Pacific mariners were so heavily invested in the habit. For example, the Portuguese introduced tobacco to the African continent from their imperial holdings on the Atlantic and Indian Ocean. The Dutch actively stimulated tobacco markets to the Balinese and Javanese in their new colony, the Dutch East Indies, and began tobacco cultivation in their settlement in Sri Lanka. For example, the Dutch recognized the Javanese obsession with cloves and mixed smokeless tobacco with cloves to encourage its consumption. Smart. Mm -hmm. They also observed the Balinese habit of chewing betel nuts, which is a stimulant, and convinced them to upgrade their chewing ritual by adding tobacco. Mm. Marketing. I know. They were all over it, the Dutch. The world's oldest profession. Just kidding. Smoking was an accepted mode of tobacco consumption in Africa because of the continent's long tradition of smoking cannabis, or daga. Many African groups accepted tobacco readily, switching back and forth between the plants, using their specially designed water pipes, which cooled the smoke before it reached the lips. There were, however, some exceptions to the universality of smoking on the African continent. For example, the Maasai in Kenya, who were known to be very proud people with disdain for rival tribes, took to snuffing instead of smoking. They felt that taking snuff rather than smoking tobacco elevated them above their rivals. The Maasai eschewed the production of pipes and instead crafted beautiful snuff boxes. 
Due to its absence from the Quran, smoking was mostly unproblematic in the Muslim Near East, where tobacco lovers adapted the African water pipe into the Persian Nargile and the Indian hookah. East Asian countries didn't have the same fear of smoke we see in the Catholic West, so smoking tobacco was pretty readily taken up there, with very few exceptions. That's not to say that tobacco enjoyed a pleasant reception in all of these places at all times. So the third reason why smokeless tobacco sometimes eclipsed the habit of tobacco smoking, um, remember the first two were climate and cultural taboos, um, the third reason is a temporary one smoking prohibitions. Since smoking was the default mode of consuming tobacco on the Asian landmass, most regulations of tobacco came in the form of smoking bans. Even when tobacco prohibitions targeted smokeless tobacco as well, snuff and chew predominated during prohibitions because they were more discreet forms of tobacco consumption. You could kind of get away with it a lot easier. Tobacco bans happen primarily in areas without a tradition of excise taxes, right? So nations that were making tax income from tobacco rarely prohibited its use, even if they didn't like it. They were like, wait, we're making tons of money off this. So oftentimes tobacco prohibitions were instituted on both practical and moral grounds. In early modern Muscovy, which is Russia, um, Romanov Tsar Mikhail Fyodorovich launched a tobacco prohibition and a brutal campaign to enforce it. He established a tobacco court to try violators of the law. Those convicted of tobacco use were flogged or had their lips slit open. The Tsar's campaign was reinforced by the Greek Orthodox Church, which updated its interpretation of the biblical story of Noah to demonize tobacco smoking. The story goes that a drunken Noah revealed his genitals to his son Ham, triggering the curse of Ham. According to the Orthodox Church, Noah was intoxicated not on alcohol, but on tobacco. In the Near East, the general public embraced tobacco smoking enthusiastically. This was not always the case for Muslim rulers, however. Uh, Ottoman Sultan Murad IV was particularly hostile to tobacco use. Murad IV was traumatized by a devastating fire that ravaged his capital early in his rule. Sometimes he himself summarily executed suspected smokers. An estimated 25,000 smokers were killed by Murad IV or on his orders. And a similar situation developed in Japan. The general public nurtured robust smoking habits to the chagrin of the Japanese shogunate. The shogunate was displeased that a foreign plant and foreign custom was becoming so popular in their realm. After 1609, the shogunate issued successive bans, each one levying more severe penalties than the last. These punishments stopped short of execution, typically amounting to fines, imprisonment, and property forfeiture. Their attempts to deprive Japanese subjects of tobacco went generally unheeded, and the prohibition was repealed in 1625. Yeah, I mean, whenever a government tries to prohibit addictive substances, it just, like, does not work. Because people are addicted. <laughs> the Japanese example reminds me, of course, of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 3, Turtles in Time, in which they go back to the time of the Japanese shogunate. And and there's like a, a British trader. Of course. Me too. That's exactly what I thought of. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yes. Oh, of course. Yes. <laughs> um, these prohibitions on tobacco smoking may have contributed to the increased popularity of smokeless tobacco. This was definitely the case in Ming, China. The last Ming emperor banned tobacco smoking in 1640, making it a capital crime punishable by decapitation. For the following four years, the Chinese turned to snuff instead to get their tobacco fix and obviously avoid execution. Several years into the Prohibition, the Qing toppled the Ming Dynasty and established their rule over the former Ming Empire. The Qing repealed the smoking prohibition and stimulated domestic tobacco cultivation in the Fukien province. In Europe, the Catholic-Protestant divide in preferred modes of tobacco consumption remained. The English and Dutch became two of the biggest proponents of tobacco smoking during the 1600s, while the French, Irish, and Catholic Southern European countries turned first to smokeless tobacco. In these areas, snuff was the primary mode of tobacco consumption. 
This led to an interesting situation in the German and Swiss lands where rulers sometimes espoused a different confession than their subjects. In the case of Saxony, the Protestant masses became quickly hooked on tobacco smoking, but the Catholic temporal and ecclesiastical rulers objected to this new fad, saying, quote, It is both godless and unseemly that the mouth of man, which is the means of entrance and exit of the immortal soul, that mouth which is intended to breathe the fresh air and to utter the praises of the Most High, should be defiled by the indrawing and expelling of tobacco smoke, end quote. A similar situation developed in Switzerland, where legal culture borrowed heavily from Saxony. Switzerland developed a dedicated tobacco court and, in some regions, even instituted the death penalty for smokers, which wasn't abolished until 1691. In more remote Catholic areas, such as the Scottish Highlands, their preference for snuff went above and beyond theological rationales. Snuff became popular in the Highlands after it was introduced there by the Irish. It's well documented that the Irish had taken up the habit of snuffing uh, by the 1630s. One observer from 1636 said, quote, The Irish take tobacco most in powder or smoochin, and it mightily refreshes the brain. And I believe there is as much taken this way in Ireland as there is in pipes in England. One shall commonly see the serving made upon the washing block and the swain upon the plowshare when they are tired with labor, take out their boxes and draw it into their nostrils with a quill and it will beget new spirits in them, end quote. Ugh. The snuffing habit took hold in Scotland where it was called smeeshin. The damp climate of the Scottish Highlands made it difficult to keep pipes lit or wrapping papers dry, so snuff seemed like the most reasonable alternative. Still, the damp presented a problem for powdered tobacco as well. For this reason, Highlanders redesigned the snuff box to suit the climate. Instead of using a cube-shaped receptacle, they adapted the ram's horn to keep as much of the powder dry as possible. Only a small amount of snuff was exposed to the moist air at the top of the ram's horn. The rest was packed safely in the long, narrow container. They also replaced the traditional detachable lid with a hinge lid that allowed them to dip their fingers into the horn without exposing the powdered snuff to precipitation and the moisture in the air. Highlanders' snuff horns were called moles. Taking snuff evolved into an important aspect of Scottish lore and political culture. Visiting clans were offered a pinch of snuff upon their arrival, and moles became coveted family heirlooms that conveyed the chiefdom to successors. Highlands myths evolved around the taking of snuff from an heirloom mall called the Scudder Mall. One clan believed that the ghost of an ancient chieftain named Hamish Ick McFair appeared when his successors were on their deathbeds. The ghost would ask for a pinch of snuff before conveying the Scudder Mall to the chieftain's heir. Scottish Highlanders are, historically, not known for being fashion-forward or trend-setting. I don't know if you knew this about Scottish Highlanders. <laughs> what? They're not. <laughs> However, in the case of snuff, they were ahead of the curve. As the 1600s came to a close, snuff was about to dominate tobacco consumption in a big way. For decades, Spain had been the epicenter of snuff manufacturing and consumption, but by 1700, its status as snuff capital of the world was in decline. For much of the 1700s, Spain continued to get rich on its snuff production, but the taking of snuff was no longer a Spanish peculiarity. This was due in part to discontent with the Spanish crown's strict control of the tobacco trade, but also because of the growing popularity of cigars in the Spanish Atlantic. Spain's South American colonies chafed at the restrictions placed on their tobacco trading by the tobacolera. Small illegal trading operations developed outside of the tobacolera system. In response, the crown cracked down even harder on tobacco regulation, crippling Venezuela's economy and sparking rebellion in Cuba. As a result, Spanish America cultivated a domestic tobacco trade among Creoles who had little or no affection for the Spanish crown. Spanish-American clergy, who maintained closer political and cultural ties with the mother country, stuck to snuff. 
but lay people began smoking cigars, or cigars as they were known, which consisted of shredded and cured tobacco wrapped in tobacco leaf. Slowly, demand for cigars in Spanish America and Spain's insistence on manufacturing as much tobacco product as possible, like on the, on the peninsula, um, meant that cigar production was established in Spain, specifically in Cadiz. While the Seville tobacco factories, now called Fabricas, continued to produce only snuff, a small outfit in Cadiz split its production between snuff and cigars. It took some time for cigars to catch on in Europe, so snuff remained Spain's most important tobacco export. But the habit of taking snuff was no longer confined to Catholic clergy, the French court, and the Scots and Irish. The early 1700s marked the beginning of snuff's golden age all throughout Europe. Snuff overtook tobacco smoking in Prussia for several reasons. Frederick the Great, who assumed the throne in 1740, was a non-smoker who was disgusted by the smell. He was not shy about his anti-tobacco stance, calling its users slovenly and foolish. Under the aegis of Frederick the Great, Prussia was a military juggernaut, Frederick was also known for his iron will and discipline, a quality that he imposed on the infamous Prussian army. As is the case in many martial societies, discipline and self-mastery were values held most dear in 18th century Prussia. Prussia was, like many European countries at the time, experiencing rapid urbanization. Growing Prussian towns were built primarily of wood, making fire a constant risk. Frederick was able to capitalize on Prussian preoccupations with discipline and fear of fire to criminalize smoking outdoors within Prussian towns. The same rule applied in the Prussian countryside, especially during harvest. So you can't even smoke outside in the boonies, like, which it's like, how do you enforce that? But still, it was law. Prussians found smoking outdoors during harvest time were sentenced to one month in prison. The ban on smoking in public, combined with the importance of public life in 18th century Prussia, encouraged the habit of snuff-taking there. Tobacco had such a hold on people that Prussians were willing to drop the ritual of smoking and take up a new mode altogether in order to get their buzz. In Prussia, snuff was adopted as the next best thing to smoking, but in Western Europe, snuff's cultural importance was escalating beyond anything that the earliest conquistadors and explorers could have imagined two centuries before. The 18th century marked the emergence of the public sphere, a concept articulated by Jürgen Habermas, which he defines as, quote, the domain of social life where a public opinion can be formed, end quote. Newspapers flew off the presses, and literacy rates skyrocketed. A tradition of public intellectualism developed within this public sphere. Philosophers like Jean-Jacques Rousseau, Baruch Spinoza, Voltaire, and Immanuel Kant enjoyed considerable celebrity. Enlightenment thinkers united with historians like Edward Gibbon and economists like Adam Smith and Thomas Malthus in wielding influence over both popular culture and official policy. In this new public sphere, respectability, also called gentility, uh, became paramount. Europeans focused on improving their hygiene, refining their manners, and following the latest fashions. France was the obvious fashion frontrunner. To other Europeans, the French had a je ne sais quoi that they longed to imitate. One social critic bemoaned the British enslavement to fashion. Quote, the gods who are worshipped here, although no altars are raised to them, are novelty and fashion. A man has but to run, and all those who see him run after him. They would not stop until he was found to be mad, but to find that out is to count the sands. We have madmen here who've been mad from birth, and they are still accepted as wise. The snuff from the Sive cat is a very small example of what a flock of sheep our citizens are, end quote. Doesn't that sound so much like, like, don't be a sheeple. Like, <laughs> that's like exactly what I said to Dan last night <laughs> to about not be the a sheeple. Se- season or the series finale of Big Bang Theory. <laughs> Britain nurtured a love-hate relationship with their oldest rivals. French phrases creeped into the English vernacular and everyone read the latest French novels. 
genteel British people ordered their clothes, cosmetics, and accessories from Paris and watched intently across the channel the soap opera that was the French Revolution. Unsurprisingly, then, the courtly French habit of taking snuff, established initially by Jean Nicot in the 1560s, became all the rage 200 years later. This international interest in French snuff stimulated the Parisian snuff industry and in turn amplified and extended the French love of snuff. As early as the 1720s, the snuff craze was underway. European writers of conduct literature were often displeased with this turn of events. For example, quote, The world has taken up a ridiculous fashion, the excessive use of snuff. All nations are snuffing, all classes snuff from the highest to the lowest. I have sometimes wondered to see how lords and lackeys, high society and the mob, woodchoppers and handymen, broom squires and beetles take out their snuff boxes with an air and dip into them. Both sexes snuff for the fashion has spread to the women. The ladies began it and are now imitated by the washerwomen. People snuff so often that their noses are more like a dust heap than a nose, so irrationally that they think the dust an ornament, although, since the world began, all rational men have thought a dirty face unhealthy, so recklessly that they lose the sense of smell and their bodily health. This was especially true in England, which, with the 1707 Act of Union, became Great Britain. Britain is such a strange case because smoking tobacco was one of an Englishman's favorite pastimes for about a hundred years before smokeless tobacco came into fashion. Smokeless tobacco was brought to England by Charles II and his entourage in the 1660s after they picked up snuff habits during their exile in France. But it wasn't until the naval battle of Vigo in 1702 that taking snuff became a quintessentially English habit. After defeating French and Spanish fleets, English Vice Admiral Edward Hobson confiscated 50 tons of Spanish snuff from their ships and sold the product on England's west coast. Hobson credited the massive volume of snuff with saving his life during the battle. One of the many ships laden with Spanish snuff was unintentionally caught in the crossfire and served to cushion the blow from a French fire attack. The powder extinguished the flames before the English ship caught fire. Vendors encouraged buyers to patriotically partake in the spoils of war by acknowledging Snuff's role in the English victory. Isn't that silly? They were like, this Snuff saved our lives. Let's shove it up our noses. (laughs) In the early decades of the 18th century, people freshly ground their own Snuff. In this context, folks would buy tightly wrapped tobacco bundles called carrots, which they would grate to order using beautifully decorated tobacco rasps. A rasp is like a grater. As as mid-century approached, powdered snuff was manufactured on a larger scale, and most people stopped grating their own. With the growth of the snuff industry came new branding opportunities tobacco had always lent itself to branding. In 1619, John Rolfe cultivated a new strain of tobacco in the Chesapeake, which he called Orinoco. Orinoco inspired impressive brand loyalty among tobacco lovers and revolutionized the way that Europeans stimulated markets for their products. Remember how we mentioned earlier the way the Dutch cultivated foreign markets in Southeast Asia that was all made possible by the example of Orinoco. Part of this branding process was the strategic adulteration of snuff powder with other substances. This process of adulteration had its roots in snuff's introduction to Europe as a therapeutic. Much like other botanicals, tobacco was mixed with all kinds of active ingredients designed to amplify its therapeutic properties. So snuff had hardly ever been quote-unquote pure. But by the 1700s, manufacturers and boutique distributors were mixing snuff with additives in an attempt to find the next best thing. This technique could involve the mixing of snuff with narcotics like cocaine, opium, or hashish. Oftentimes, snuff was adulterated with substances we now understand to be toxic, 
lead, arsenic, or hydrogen cyanide, for example. Snuff was also enhanced with flavorants like orange oil, rose, musk, ginger, mustard, and pepper. This process of adulteration added another layer of complexity to a product that had already earned the attention of aficionados who had been, for centuries, refining their appreciation for different strains, provenances, and preparations of their favorite plant. Gentlefolk and refined wannabes everywhere looked for an opportunity to flaunt their encyclopedic knowledge of snuff varieties. They were snuff sommeliers. But they must have had their own name, right? Because... because well, I, I don't know. Because now beer sommeliers are called Cicerones. I don't know. Mm-hmm. This performative aspect of snuff-taking was punctuated with all sorts of snuff accoutrement. Once tobacco rasps those little graters that were used to grate carrots of tobacco, were no longer needed, the snuff box became the snuff taker's most important accessory. Snuff boxes became so elaborate that they were regarded as jewelry. Perhaps they were comparable to pocket watches or wristwatches, which have a function but also a decorative purpose. An array of tiny implements in the shape of spatulas or spoons were used to bring snuff to nostrils, and dedicated handkerchiefs, often emblazoned with its owner's initials or family crest, were used to complete the snuff-taking ritual. Right. Remember, the point of taking snuff is that it makes you sneeze. And that's why it's called sneezing tobacco sometimes. Oh. These items were incredibly precious to the folks who owned them. Records from the Old Bailey, London Central Criminal Court, are filled with stories of snuff box thievery. 18th century newspapers are filled with classified ads placed by crestfallen owners describing their precious lost and stolen snuff boxes in hopes that they'd be recovered by a neighbor. This cultural phenomenon is observable in French, Dutch, and English colonies in America as well. For example, in 1747, the Boston Gazette published the following classified advertisement. Quote, lost in removing goods in the last fire at the courthouse, a silver snuff box marked S.A. Butler, which would have been Samuel Butler, I guess, um, a lion engraved thereon. Any person who will bring it to the owner or to the printer shall have 20 shillings, and if offered to sell, it's desired it may be stopped, end quote. Snuff boxes were often made of expensive materials like gold, silver, ivory, or tortoise shell, and inset with precious gems, mosaics, cowrie shells, and portrait miniatures. Chinese snuff boxes were often lacquered and decorated with mother of pearl. More often in China, the insides of snuff boxes were painted so elaborately that it became an art form. There were, of course, less ostentatious versions made of tin, carved wood, or even paper mache. Still, they would have been precious objects to those who owned them, even if they weren't encrusted with jewels. In the early decades of the 18th century, European aristocrats and Enlightenment celebrities developed elaborate snuff-taking rituals that resembled performance art. Upwardly mobile Europeans imitated these public performances, and some even enrolled in workshops or finishing school courses to learn how to take snuff in a manner that conveyed their desired social status rather than the social status into which they were born. During this time, more than any other, the mode of one's tobacco consumption was intimately bound with their social status. Smoking became decidedly lowbrow, meant for soldiers, sailors, country bumpkins, and foreigners. Snuff, with its fancy, ornate receptacles, elaborate etiquette, and savvy branding, conveyed cultivation and sophistication. This process of emulation was amplified by the French and British presses, whose bread and butter were columns and news stories about high society in Paris and London. For example, author, historian, and and member of parliament Edward Gibbon had a wicked snuff habit, which he credited as the basis for his creative genius. Gibbon's love for snuff was widely publicized and imitated by admirers in the French and British empires. This amplification by the public sphere continued into what is known as the Regency period of 1795 to 1820 in Britain and the Napoleonic era in France, or 1799 to 1815. 
The French briefly disowned snuff during the French Revolution and its many related wars. Support of Republican politics became so fervent that revolutionary radicals were able to take control of the new French Republic. The revolution slowly devolved into the reign of terror under Maximilien Robespierre. During the reign of terror, primarily in 1793, um, it was dangerous to be an aristocrat and even more dangerous to want to be one. Since snuff was associated with elitism, taking it could amount to a death sentence. This did not, however, last long. After the fall of Robespierre's radical government, the habits of the Ancien Regime returned. Napoleon Bonaparte's snuff habit was prodigious. Napoleon took one kilo of snuff per week. Ian Gately worked out that this equates to a 100 cigarette per day habit. Napoleon's snuff boxes were all made of precious metals and gems and encrusted with miniatures and busts of his historical heroes like Julius Caesar and Alexander the Great. His favorite snuff box, however, bore the likeness of his first wife and the love of his life, Josephine. In Britain, snuff and its elite associations never went out of style, but its cultural meaning was changing. Snuff's new spokesperson was George Brian Brummel known to history as the world's first metrosexual, Beau Bremel. One observer described him as follows, quote, heroically consecrated to this one object, the wearing of clothes wisely and well, so that as others dress to live, he lives to dress. My first introduction to Beau Bremel was Annie the Musical. Your clothes may be Beau Brummelly, stand out for a mile, but Sonny, you're never fully dressed without a smile. Don't you know that song? Negative. Oh. Well, I always, as like a kid, I was like, who the F is Beau Brummelly? But it's, it's like Beau Brummel E, like very Beau Brum, yeah. But I, you know, which I finally learned when I was like an adult, but. I have been singing this song for like three days because because of this episode of reading about Bo Brummel. So, um, and Sarah Henley Cousins has mentioned him before in her episodes as well. Um, Bo Brummel was fastidiously clean and physically fit. His aesthetic made waves in London's high society. He disavowed the powdered wig and took to wearing his hair dark and short. He wore dark tailored coats, long trousers, and stiffly starched cravats. His trousers were held straight with stirrups that were wrapped around his black boot heel. Brummel accentuated his Regency aesthetic with a new, neater snuff ritual. His chosen blend was Martinique, mixed by a high-end snuff firm, Freiburg and Trier. Brummel was imitated by many, and he even converted the Prince of Wales, who was, whose nickname was Prinny, into a devoted snuff taker. Prinny's mother, Queen Charlotte, came to love Freiburg and Trier's Morocco blend, which she took so regularly that she was called Snuffy Charlotte. <laughs> Freiburg and Trier took advantage of Brummel's and the royal family's loyalty by reporting it on their product labels, making them the first tobacco company to obtain a royal endorsement. Um, and I want to add that Brummel's um, new uh, snuff ritual um, he actually phased out sneezing um, because he felt like that was the least hygienic part of snuff taking. So he, he basically made snuff taking kind of more like um, snorting cocaine, but hmm, snuff. Gross. Snuff's golden age, however, was coming to a close. The British aided Spain and Portugal in their war against Napoleon, known as the Peninsular War, 1807 to 1814. It was there that the British cavalry were introduced to Spanish cigars. Remember, Spain began producing cigars a century earlier in response to the desires of their South American markets. Cigars were relatively rare in Britain before the Peninsular War. They imported only 26 pounds of cigars in 1800. But by 1830, Britain was importing 250,000 pounds of cigars per year. Some of those directly from Cuba. Like that's crazy. That's like that's huge. Yeah. What ten thousand times the amount? Oh my god, mm -hmm. this is crazy. 
just as snuff had its detractors, so too did cigars. People were generally unused to the smell of tobacco smoke after decades of smokeless tobacco consumption, especially in public places. Complaints from non-smokers stimulated the establishment of smoking rooms in gentlemen's clubs, restaurants, and even in Parliament. In order to minimize the absorption of smoke into their hair and clothing, smokers took to wearing smoking caps and smoking jackets. After their smoke, they removed their smoking garments and left them and the acrid odor behind. With the cigar's newfound popularity, pipe smoking returned to Britain, France, and the rest of continental Europe. Of course, folks had been smoking in all of these places all along, but their habit was, in the public sphere, regarded as plebeian and even aberrant. By the end of the Napoleonic War, smoking was becoming normal again. Snuff became the habit of old-fashioned geezers, has-beens. As always... There were some exceptions to this. Sweden retained its early modern love for snuff in the form of snoo, a nasal snuff that still enjoys popularity in Swedish culture. And then I just didn't really, because I don't know what else the f- to say, because just snuff is dead and nobody talks about it anymore or uses it. The end. <laughs> Except the Swedes. Except the Swedes. Um, I even actually even looked to try to find some snuff that I could buy to see if it was like still a thing um and it kind of is but you can like it's really only like swedish nasal snuff and the rest of the snuff that you find is all like moist snuff like meant for oral um like basically chew so could you buy just like tobacco from the res and dry it out and powder it up um i don't know maybe Probably. I mean, they they probably even sell just sort of cured tobacco, like for people who um, roll their own cigarettes or whatever. But you'd have That's to, I mean, yeah, yeah, you'd have to like grind it in like, in like a food processor or something. Because it has to be like literal powder, like how cocaine yeah. is powder. Um, mm-hmm. It's not, like, I guess when I first thought of snuff, I thought of it as being like ground, not, not ground, like shredded tobacco that people mm-hmm. would like snuff up their nose and I was like oh it's so gross like how does that but it's if it's powder it makes a little bit more sense if you think of it as like really akin to cocaine right um, powdered cocaine yeah that you know it's basically cocaine except it's like brown um mm-hmm. and you know I imagine it enter it enters the bloodstream the same way that cocaine does through your um mucous membranes and your nose and sinus cavities and stuff like that um But it's interesting because we're not used to thinking of tobacco as an intoxicant exactly. Like, I think we think of it more of as like, like you don't think of yourself as getting drunk off a cigarette or like wasted or whatever. Like you would with like an oxycodone or like alcohol. Do you? I mean, I don't think of it that way. Well, I do, but I am anti-tobacco in such a strong way. Yeah. I mean, I I think of it more as like a a relaxant, kind of like drinking a cup of tea or something, Um, you know, because like caffeine is is an intoxicant also, but it's so normal, such a normal part of your everyday life that you don't think of it as like a drug. Um, well, so is wine and beer and no, gin. No, I mean, yeah, but I think people tend to think of that as drugs probably more just because um, we have such problems with alcoholism in in the world. Um, we have such a problem with nicotine addiction, too. Well, not so much anymore. I mean, the mm-hmm. the rate of people who, who smoke is like nothing compared to... Um, I mean, literally every single person in the world, all men, all women, um, took snuff. And smoking, that's kind of an interesting thing about snuff is that smoking was a more masculine um, endeavor. So the end of snuff taking, um, I think, also kind of ushered in this um, this new um, gender differentiation, right, between tobacco use and not. So people didn't expect women to use tobacco as much as they expected men to. But during the snuff craze, snuff was, you know, it didn't discriminate men and women used it equally. 
Um, so in your episode about the Sappho, Pharaoh, blue stocking mm-hmm. women, were they doing snuff or yeah. were they smoking? They were doing, they were doing snuff. snuff. Probably some of them smoked a little bit, but um, that would have been like a weird little like random thing to do. You know, um, it's a yeah, it's an interesting comparison with like the new woman and her like smoking being a, an evidence of that. Oh, she's a new woman. Right. Because. She's smoking. Smoking like a man. How, how that might be like the the blue stockings of the 18th century. Mm-hmm. Well, a lot yeah. of people, yeah. And, and so a lot of people like criticize like, oh my God, like women are taking snuff like crazy. Like that's so unladylike. Um, but because of what taking snuff looked like, it was sort of dainty. I mean, it's kind of like cocaine, like cocaine, like, like snorting cocaine doesn't seem particularly masculine or anything mm-hmm. um the way that smoking kind of does is for for whatever reason you know i don't know why um but yeah so snuff you could sort of see as like a brief uh you know a brief and very limited equality of the genders when it came to um taking tobacco um and that's Mm -hmm. why i mentioned when they they made they made smoking rooms they were all in usually um very male um domains like gentlemen's clubs and they didn't make smoking rooms um usually like in places where women were expected to be which was usually in your home i guess um or a church yeah or a church um or like i don't know at the dress shop or something i don't know um Mm. So, yeah, I think that is, you know, if I were to do this episode again, I would maybe want to focus a little bit on that. But there's actually so little about the history of snuff out there um, that it was a sort of difficult episode to do without talking about tobacco more generally, which, you know, I did do. But I tried to focus on why um, smokeless tobacco sometimes um, eclipse the use of smoking tobacco because I think it's Mm -hmm. pretty obvious that tobacco smoking is like the primary way that that tobacco is typically taken now yeah and really and really throughout most of history too um, except for those very small areas where there were like smoking bands or um, and basically the 18th century which is just a weird weird place and time. I will say that I think that I must come from people that thought about tobacco as a, a medicine because I remember when we were little, you know, because like my parents and my mom's entire family all smoked and there was all just like constantly smoking. Mm-hmm. Um, but when we got bee stings, a, one of our adults would like unroll a cigarette and then make a little wet paste and then pack the bee sting with tobacco to as a healer yeah i've heard that too i I've, I, I don't nobody my mom quit smoking when i was like one or two but um so i don't that didn't happen but i have seen other people do that like with my friends mm. and things so i don't think it's um the craziest thing i think and we both sort of like both of our ancestries were our people who would have we both come from the very wet climes of the British Isles Mm. like uh, I don't know ethnically or whatever Um, they would have used snuff Mm. like primarily and yes would have used tobacco medicinally for Mm -hmm. centuries which is so weird to think of yeah so weird very weird um Okay, that's the doorbell in the background. So I should go because I want to eat. <laughs> okay, well, you have to do the sign-off this time. Okay, um, thanks for joining us for this episode about smokeless tobacco. Um, if you would like to help support the show, go to patreon.com backslash dig podcast. Check us out on Twitter, um, dig underscore history. Check out our website where you can find show notes and transcripts, digpodcast.org. And even maybe navigate to our Dig History Pod Squad on Facebook and ask to join. I just share silly memes and, um, you know, anyone can post and it's very chill because it's nice and kind of a small, tight community. Basically, we're all just history dorks. So mm-hmm. um, thanks for joining us and... You know, we love you. Bye. Bye. 
slavish Indians. Slavish. Are you sure? Like, thought a dirty fay unhealthy. Face. Oh, that makes more sense. A dirty fay. <laughs> well, one never knows the fay yeah, people no, are about. No, one does never know. These simple gades, is that how you say that? It's an actual word. Sure. Snuff's new spokesperson was George Brian Bummer. Brummel. <laughs> Sorry, it's br br Bummer. <laughs> uh, it's Brummel. Sorry, that's just a random um, typo. Tabacalera. Tabacalera. I think it's Tabacalera. 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 James the Sixth of Scotland, aka James the Second of England. No, isn't it James the First? Yeah, no, 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 you're right. You're right. No, you're right. Yeah. Whew. Good thing I just read a book about him. <clears throat> In the midst of de of delegitimizing, I, I don't know if I wrote. Wait, delegit? No, I did. Okay. In Europe, the second half of the 19th. Mm, nope. There's a blue shade outside my window. Oh, wow. so pretty. Due to their important death, that doesn't even make sense. Um, I think important is just dangling there from something else. Um, one wero shaman. Wait, oh my god, I, don't, I really don't know how to say that. Wero, 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 waro, waro. Isn't it waro? Waro. Well, what about the second A? Isn't it Waro? just silent? I don't know. 